The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Welcome to Museum Life this week. Uh, Today's program is entitled Doing Everything for Everyone. Uh, I... We have been doing a series over the last few weeks looking at uh, the impact of digital technologies on museums and, in fact, sort of the broader context of museums in a digital age. And in met, working with several of my clients and also going to meetings and, and uh, listening in on conversations with museum colleagues, it seems as if many of us feel that we really are on a never-ending hamster wheel of trying to keep up with all of the digital technologies, shifting from one digital technology to another, feeling as if we have to be doing everything for everyone all the time. And with this sort of sense of frenzy, a couple of months ago, I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to listen to Nancy Proctor give a lecture about uh, about this very topic. And uh, she she pu- was able to put this. Uh, this sort of digital frenzy into a much better perspective for me uh, actually calmed uh, calmed my whole digital uh, franticness down. And so I wanted to share her insights uh, with you today on the program. Many of you who are listening know Nancy very well. Uh, she has a phenomenal reputation in our field. She is currently Deputy Director for Digital Experience and Communications at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And She's also co-chair of Museums in the Web. She has, in her career, headed up mobile strategy and initiatives at the Smithsonian, and uh, as well as new media initiatives at the Smithsonian's American Art Museum. Nancy holds a PhD in American art history, a background in filmmaking, curation, and art criticism. She published her first online exhibition in 1995. Doesn't that sound like a million years ago? And she also co 
co-founded the GalleryChannel.com with Titus Bicknell to present virtual tours of innovative exhibitions alongside comprehensive global museum and gallery listings. She uh, directed antenna sales in France and worked with the Travel Channel's production development team. Uh, Nancy, I could go on and on about your uh, illustrious career and all of the things that you're doing uh, to strengthen our field, but I'll give you an opportunity to speak now and share with us some of your uh, some of your insights and some of the activities that have actually shaped your career and current thinking about museums in the digital age. Welcome oh, to the show. Thank you so much, Carol. It's really um, it was a pleasure speaking with you prior to this show, and I'm really looking forward to um, what we might be able to dig up in the next hour or so. Well, great. I. As I said, I always ask um, my guests to just give a little, you know, I've given a, the, um, what I would call the, uh, uh, the the cold stellar um, uh, narrative of your career, but if you could just uh, you know maybe put a little little uh, 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 color and emotion uh, in into your background for us, especially perhaps one or two of those aha moments that you've had uh, that led you to your current thinking about uh, museums in the digital age. Right. Well, you certainly did take me back a ways, um, reading my little bio there and the references to Gallery Channel and some of my um, early work with the web. Um, I guess what has characterized my trajectory is uh, really just following my passion. Um, there was never very much of a plan. Um, there is, a, uh, I suppose, a, a common, a dominant principle that has characterized most of what I do, which is um, I always try to do things that... Um, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, that um, open more than one door at a time. So uh, when I went to undergraduate uh, university, I did a double major because I figured that would give me double the options to go forward. Uh, So it's it's always been about trying to keep multiple routes and possibilities on the table. My um, coming into technology was in some ways very accidental. Um, in In other ways, I think I'm a a product of my generation. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> it feels a very long time ago now, but I was given a, a computer back in the days, a Commodore 64 back in the days when the memory was cassette tapes. And I remember getting it with a a, uh, a spiral-bound notebook with the code for various game programs written in it, and you had to kind of type it into the computer in order to run them. Um, and I did go to the North Carolina School of, My- of Science and Mathematics. Um, that, too, is a little bit of a stretch for me. I've always tended to be a little bit more humanities-oriented, but I got lucky, and it was the English professor of the high school who interviewed me, so I managed to get in <laughs> and got ex- early exposure to basic and, and some fundamental concepts of computing there. And, and upon leaving high school, I didn't go straight to university. I actually worked as technical writer for a geographic information system startup company. And um, back in those days, word processing was done on big mainframe computer, computers on a back. So I wrote their user manuals um, in WordPerfect, which resembled HTML very much. And I think if I hadn't had that early experience, I probably never would have learned any coding at all. But there was no alternative in those days uh, than to know uh, at least the basic concept of tagging um, text. 
Um, but my, my draw was always towards art, and I was a classicist. I, I studied Latin, Latin literature, ancient art and archaeology. Um, and it was Titus Bicknell, um, who eventually became my husband, who introduced me to the web. And that was while I was doing graduate work. I was curating exhibitions, had no money. Um, these exhibitions were happening in very marginal art spaces, uh, people's homes and things. Uh, and there were no funds for catalogs. Um, so he suggested that we build a website instead as a means of documenting the, the show and the artist's work. And to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think I knew what a website was at the time. This is around 1995. I had been on email for a few years, but um, that too was a, a painful <laughs> process. And... Um, so we came up with, you know, as, as so many people did at the same time, uh, you know, following the principle of multiples that very rarely uh, does an idea arise uh, in isolation with just one person at once. I think around that time, a lot of people got the idea that putting art online was a way to really transform the industry, um, to give uh, artists a direct route to collectors, uh, bypassing gallerists and other middlemen. Um, and I think I was operating on a, a fair amount of naivety about what those middlemen actually add to the, uh, to the ecosystem there. But um, the biggest problem with this idea back in the mid-90s was that we were all operating on 7 and 9K dial-up modems, so downloading lots of high-resolution images of artwork and virtual tours of exhibitions, which is what I was trying to do, um, was, uh, you know, <laughs> what gave WWW the, uh, the translation of worldwide weight. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, it was an interesting time because the dot-com boom was starting and there was a lot of money flowing around. Um, and, you know, despite all of the, the big crashes and, and, and perhaps uh, funds that were lost in that era, I, I still regard it as an incredibly important period in the history of human creativity because, at least in my lifetime, I've never seen such a sustained and um, uh, significant investment in innovation and new ideas, um, as, as I saw in that whole dot-com boom period. And fortunately, some of that money trickled down to the arts. I was living in the UK, and the Arts Council of England offered a very easy uh, grant program. You could get £5,000 to do just about anything, as long as you could spell your address correctly on the application form. And uh, so Titus and I were able to secure a grant to create the first website of contemporary art with CD-ROM publication, CD-ROM-based catalog, as it were, um, that we were certainly aware of uh, uh, in the UK and perhaps beyond. And it was called New Art. Um, and believe it or not, it's still online, uh, hosted at pinkink.net. Um, and so that was my, my entree into digital publishing. Um, after finishing my doctoral dissertation um, <laughs> in feminist theory of 19th century uh, American women sculptors who worked in Rome in the neoclassical style, as you can imagine, I was unemployable. So um, we started a dot-com to help arts organizations primarily um, learn how to use the web, set them up with email, websites, and we created the gallerychannel.com, um, which, uh, yeah. 
Well, that thank you. That that's actually a wonderful, wonderful history, and there are many, many lessons in there, especially for uh, people who are just beginning uh, their field, uh, as as well as those who are mid-career, and even those of us who are are uh, later in our career. That there is always something new to do, and it's it's good to know uh, that uh, a, a classics education can uh, uh, arrive you at uh, at these very interesting uh, junctures. You know, um, Nancy, I, as I uh, said at the beginning, I have been fortunate enough to have heard, uh, heard you speak and, and uh, in preparing for this conversation, I've listened to several of your uh, seminars that are online, and I would encourage all of um, our listeners today to, uh, uh, to listen to Nancy's wonderful presentations. And one of the things that you talk about is you encourage museums to think about themselves as part of a distributed information network rather than an institution that simply works on multiple platforms. And, uh, and when you exp- when I first heard that, that is what was sort of an aha light bulb for me in uh, thinking about muse- museums in a digital age. So uh, I know that this is audio only, and so we can't see your slides or, wa- or see your hands move, but could you just explain uh, a little bit to our listeners what, the, what is a distributed information network, and how is that different from the way that many institutions view their digital platforms? Um, I think the important shift uh, in that concept is away from the idea that the museum is a destination. Um, now, you know, uh, the, uh, until uh, the dawn of the Internet, really, there was no choice but to uh, invite people to come to see the museum, visit the museum in person. Um, I mean, obviously, there were catalogs and, and traveling exhibitions, um, but, you know, those are costly and difficult things, and their their reach was limited. Um the problem with the model of a museum as a destination is it very easily slides into a business model of a museum as visitor attraction. And that really sells museums short. Um, that uh, puts us in a business model where, you know, we're competing with everything from sports to, uh, to Disney. Um, and I wouldn't say that we're not competing with uh, those sorts of activities for people's leisure time anyway. But um, we need to have a, a, a model um, around our mission and our strategy and, and how we sustain ourselves financially that goes beyond the mere uh, commercial transaction. Um, so, uh, in fact, uh, Judith Mastai, who uh, used to be at uh, Vancouver Art Gallery, wrote uh, a really important essay for me called uh, There Is No Such Thing as a Visitor. And uh, she points out that as long as we're thinking about visitor services, there is this kind of uh, capitalist economy that's in operation, um, which uh, sees the visitor as a customer, uh, uh, presumes that the visitor knows what they want, and it's the job of the museum to give them exactly what they want. And success is measured on the, uh, the I, I suppose, the profit ratio of 
of uh, service delivered according to the demand of the visitor. But if we think of ourselves as educational institutions, then we need to go beyond that model. And I would say perhaps we might start with the idea that uh, we're responding to uh, the obvious front of mind questions or interests that people have when they come to a museum. But we need to use those as hooks to take them further. And there's a, a phrase that I've heard used by many different people. I first heard it from Mike Edson at the Smithsonian, which is meet them where they are and then take them someplace new. Um, so if we can uh, go beyond the idea of a museum as, as a destination, then we start to think of it as a jumping off point, as a meeting point, as a link, as a bridge, um, as a connector really to uh, communities, to conversations, to ideas that perhaps people weren't even aware existed. And I think that really, uh, you know, not, obviously not only meets the museum's mission, but also does respond to something that I've seen certainly over and over in contact with uh, public in museums from my time at Antenna Audio to the present, is that one of the things that does bring people to museums is the idea that there is expertise there that they want to tap into. They want to hear from the experts, be they artists or curators or whatever. Um, and so we can, uh, I think, think about that expertise as something that um, can answer questions that perhaps people didn't know when they first got there and, and build a richer experience than they would have had if we were just uh, still in this kind of transactional model of what do you want here, I'm going to give it to you. Nancy, thank you. That is, that's very, very interesting. Uh, particularly, uh, you hit upon something that uh, is, is just a, is a recurring theme. Uh, many of our guests have talked about it, and not necessarily uh, uh, those of you who are talking about museums in a digital age, but that is the idea that in our industry of museums, we tend to put on other people's paradigms. Uh, and we try them on for size, and then we decide that we love them, and without really thinking, maybe thinking about the consequences. And so when you talk about museums as destinations, uh, and of course uh, there are many organizations that track museum attendance uh, in the same documents that they attend. Uh, uh, track um, uh, other kinds of attractions. Uh, you, know, you mentioned Disney, but other kinds of fairs and things. And that for a very long time, we really have, uh, we took on that mantle. Uh, particularly in the 90s, we were all very excited about you know uh, calling our, our visitors guests or customers and talking about guest services and customer services. But I suppose what you're saying is like everything else, uh, there are some good parts of that. We want to make sure that, that uh, people coming to our museums know where the bathrooms are and they can sit down when they get tired and they can get something to eat uh, or or uh, uh, drink when they need refreshments. But, but that, like any kind of model, if we get trapped in it, it prevents us from thinking further. 
Absolutely. And uh, believe me, I'm, I'm one of the first to complain about the lack of seating in a museum. So, you know, I'm not certainly not advocating that, um, you know, we swing the pendulum towards some sort of a, uh, uh, a schoolhouse model. Um, but to recognize that museums play a unique role. We are not businesses in the traditional sense, nor are we educational institutions in the traditional sense. We're something else. And, uh, as you say, that's that can be problematic for us to define and understand exactly if we spend too much time um, kind of trying to adopt the models that have been proven elsewhere, looking for an easy fix. If it worked for them, maybe it'll work for us. Um, you know, one of the other things I'm fond of saying is if this were an easy job, they would hire people even dumber than us and uh, pay them even less than they do. So <laughs> it's, it's not going to be straightforward. There is no magic bullet. But I do think that, um, you know, if we're really thinking very hard about our mission as this complex, faceted uh, uh, endeavor, that's going to put us on the right path. I couldn't have said it better, Nancy. And uh, before we continue, we are going to have to take our uh, our first of two breaks. So uh, please stay tuned. Uh, we will be back in just a couple of minutes with uh, more conversations with uh, Nancy Proctor. Remember, you're listening to Museum Life, and I'm Carol Bossert. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. 
To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. Uh, You're listening to Museum Life uh, with Carol Bossert. And today we're talking with uh, Nancy Proctor. And right before the break, Nancy was making some uh, very, very important points about museums being unique uh, educational institutions, uh, just being unique institutions that uh, sit in the, the nexus of a variety of of uh, services that we provide to our society. And Nancy, one of the things that, that you mentioned that I, that I do want to follow up on a little bit is um, this idea of when people come to the museum, and I'm assuming that could be come to the museum physically or come to the museum virtually, uh, they are coming because they do expect a, a level of, of expertise or knowledge or learning and sharing from, from others uh, who, who have a, a different perspective than they do. And that reminds me of one of the terms that, that uh, is bantied around right now and maybe it will go away but it's it's with us right now is this this concept of crowdsourcing and i think sometimes that that term gets a um has has the implication that uh, you know it's it's almost just democracy in action, and I'm I'm all for democracy, but uh, sometimes it can also lead to the lowest common denominator, or even take the expertise out of the equation. So one of the other things that you've talked about, instead of crowdsourcing, you've been talking about community sourcing, and I'm just wondering if uh, that's something that you might want to. Uh, talk a little bit about? Sure. Well, I actually learned uh, the term community sourcing from Amy Sample Ward um, and a really useful blog post that she uh, wrote about um, there's a difference between um, uh, trying to approach a mass of people whom you don't know, um, you know, really uh, you're in the realm of, of mass advertising where you're having to kind of bombard a huge numbers of people with a lot of messages in the hope that it's going to stick with a number of them. Um, there's a, a very high level of effort and, and cost in reaching people uh, in the crowd, quote unquote, versus community sourcing or reaching people in a known target audience. Um, so if you know that you are addressing your museum's membership or if you know you are addressing stamp collectors or you know you're addressing quilting enthusiasts, you know a lot more about them and you can be much more effective with fewer resources and in, in less time because you can tailor your message um, and really make sure that you're going to where those people are. Um, Um, in order to try to engage them. So I found that incredibly useful in, again, thinking about business models and strategies for museums. Um, One of the uh, 
other really um, kind of impactful talks I've heard on museums uh, was given by Chris Anderson, uh, the editor of Wired magazine, way back in 2009 at the Smithsonian. Um, and I think it's testimony to its impact on me that I'm, I'm continuing to talk about it today, five years later. But he, he basically interpreted his long tail theory of economics for museums and um, suggested that you know, one of the uh, ways in which there uh, are, are, are sympathetic opportunities in the digital world and in museums is that we are both um, uh, really good at catering to and cultivating niche communities of expertise and interest. So, you know, the thing that became possible with the scale of the Internet was connecting uh, disparate individuals with similar interests around the globe and actually creating a community with a large enough size to have some impact. Um, and I think museums are very good at speaking to and attracting people with niche interests because that's, after all, what our collections are, right? They're made up of, of, uh, of, of objects that have been collected by experts with, with very focused expertise. And uh, we do a really good job at speaking to the people who were passionate about, uh, you know, uh, 19th century engraving, for example. Um, so I was interested in, in one of the points of, of long tail theory is that the long tail, that is the part of the uh, economic curve that's made up of all of these niche communities is actually fully one half the market. The mass market is big, but it's only a half of the market. And so I wondered if there were ways that museums, by aggregating uh, lots of communities of special interest who are very passionate about their interests, in fact, as Chris Anderson argued, more passionate than we tend to be about mass market movies or products or experiences, um, would, that, would that constitute um, a, an engine and, and, and an approach um, that could really uh, give us a sustainable uh, business model. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I was I was going to ask ask you to continue. That's that's a very provocative statement. Uh, I think that as we often uh, look at uh, our museum audience, whether it's coming through the doors or uh, or or the virtual audience, as this sort of mass faceless group and I think is it, what you're pointing out is that maybe that's not an effective way of, of looking at things uh, it certainly is an effective when we talk about exhibition design uh, so I suppose it doesn't make uh, it shouldn't be surprising to me that that doesn't make any sense when we're thinking about the virtual world yeah, and it kind of misses the point of the opportunity with uh, that the Internet and connected technologies have brought us. I mean, the reality is you can do the best job in the world of marketing and attracting and engaging new audiences and bringing people to your museum, but there is a limit on the number of people who will ever be able to afford the plane ticket, the hotel room, the gas to come to your museum. And so we can only achieve so much against our missions uh, in that direction. You know, because I, I, sorry, I, I, I assume that museums' missions are, you know, uh, uh, we're, we're operating under these, these business constraints that are, first of all, our, our collections are, uh, by definition, invaluable. 
they and therefore we have to uh, make them accessible to the broadest possible audience globally, regardless of whether or not that audience can afford to pay for the cost of that accessibility. And and because, again, the nature of these essential collections, these, these unique repositories of human knowledge and creativity, we have to do that. We have to make those collections accessible and available to the world for forever. Right. I mean, we can't we can't monetize our assets in the way a normal business does. We can't if we get in financial trouble, shut down and sell everything off and open up tomorrow across the street under a different name. So we will never be able to fulfill our missions of, of greatest possible accessibility to our collections in the physical world. We need to leverage the opportunities and, and, and the, the affordances of networked uh, technologies to uh, both attract and connect um, communities of interest who may never physically be able to visit us, but who can nonetheless um, really benefit from and contribute very meaningfully to the conversations and, and the discourses that form around our collections. You know, Nancy, it it occurs to me, uh, following your train of thought, then, that if a museum director, let's just use use the, uh, you know, put a face on the museum, the museum director, instead of of asking the question of uh, how can we re, you know, how can we use the, our our digital um, assets to, uh, you know, reach the largest possible audience, which, you know, to me seems sort of, you know, faceless and nameless and means that, you know, you have so many opportunities, so many different different platforms. But instead, if that, that uh, museum director might say, well, how do we reach all the people in the world who are interested in, using your example, uh, stamp collecting? Because that's that is a strength of, of our collection and our expertise. It would seem to me if they ask that question, then the answers would follow to more specific websites, more specific wikis, more uh, you know, there probably is is a community out there already, a digital community of people who love stamps or want to know about stamps that the museum could tap into instead of just throwing it all out there and hoping this, that some people would connect with them. Am I, am I on the right track there? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the line I'm, I'm thinking on. And I, I won't claim to be able to uh, hand over a kind of a recipe or a set of easy-to-follow instructions that uh, show us how to do that. But I think this is where um, we enter into a realm of a very different understanding of of sustainability. Um, So it's not the sustainability of the mass market, which in fact is not very sustainable at all because people are very fickle, as as, Hollywood can tell you. but we're entering into uh, a model that um, I've found it useful to think through technology analogies to understand. So there is the concept in technology of the distributed network. Um, the Internet is really the main distributed network that people will have ever experienced. Um, and, of course, it was designed um, by its you know, uh, military indus- industrial uh, designers um, 
to be sustainable against an attack on any center. So that is to say the way the Internet works is that there are uh, servers, computers distributed around the world uh, with copies of content so that if, if uh, it goes out in one place, it can reappear in another place. And, of course, as we've all experienced, it's, it's almost impossible to erase anything from the Internet once it's out there. Um, now, there's a downside to that, obviously, if you're trying to cover your tracks. But if you're thinking about um, sustainability in a different way, if you're thinking about um, long-term widespread impact on audiences, then, in, then engaging those niche communities around the globe means that you know even when the museum is closed, conversations can continue to happen, uh, research and engagement can continue um, to, to evolve um, through these, these communities and, and the discourses that they're undertaking. So that's one kind of sustainability that I think network technologies can bring to museums and just prolonging, uh, in a sense, uh, the, the day and extending it um, to, to other geographies. Um, the other kind of sustainability that I'm interested in, and, and this is really kind of an, a new line of thought for me, so um, I'd be very happy to hear from anybody who, who wants to comment on it because I'm still kind of working through the details of it, but I've been thinking about personalization lately, and um, Personalization and location-based, interior location-based services have been the two kind of um, unachievable goals of museum technology in my career. Um, they're both things that have seen a lot of money thrown at them and never have really been achieved in any um, satisfactory way. And in fact, I have deliberately stayed away from personalization because of the two, it seemed to me, the harder. Um, but now that I've been working with crowdsourcing and community sourcing for some time, I'm starting to think that that might be a route um, towards uh, coming to a new understanding of how we can personalize and therefore open new doors, create new kinds of access and engagement to museum collections. Um, so um, if you can permit me a very a very brief uh, aha moment story, um, I was sure recently listening to a, a podcast, which I liked very much. And so, of course, I wanted to share it with my social media network. And I went to tweet the link to the podcast. And, of course, uh, NPR gave me a little kind of generic text around the link uh, to share with people. And um, I thought, gosh, you know, this podcast meant so much more to me than is captured in this kind of generic text around what the podcast is. So, of course, I personalized the tweet, and I put something in there to explain to my network why I thought they should listen to this, why this had been so meaningful to me. So I personalized access to that NPR content. And it struck me that that's the other side of the coin to the expertise. People do want to hear from the experts. They want great quality content. They want wonderful stories. But the 
hooks are not always available to help people grapple onto it. And Peter Samus from SF MoMA with Stephanie Poe wrote a wonderful paper, I think it was back in 2007 for Museums in the Web, about how some art um, seems to be Teflon coated. It's really hard to kind of grapple with and get a handhold on. And other art has, seems to be coated with Velcro and it's really easy. It's very sticky content. People gravitate towards it. And that the role of interpretation is to add hooks um, to things that are otherwise difficult to access. I think that is the reality. Museums will never have more than so many staff and so many resources to create content and, and routes of access and engagement to their collections and their content. Where we can uh, really scale ourselves up through collaborating with our audiences, through, through crowdsourcing and community sourcing, is inviting those audiences to do what I did with that tweet, to describe to their networks, in light of their interests, why this content is interesting and important, and then share it. And so, really, the, the interface, if you will, to the expert content um, is personalized through crowdsourcing. That's... Um, I'm going to stop you right now. Sure. I'm going to stop you right there, Nancy, uh, because you've said so many really valuable things that I would like to dig a little deeper uh, into, if you don't mind. But before we do that, I am going to have to take my second break, so we will do that right now. Let Nancy have a sip of water, and when we return, uh, I we will continue this conversation with Nancy Proctor about uh, some of the challenges of the digital age and in this concept of personalization. So please stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing 
Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bosser. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here today having just a marvelous and and thoughtful conversation with Nancy Proctor. And before we um, uh, went to break, Nancy was talking and giving a, a really great example about what personalization means to her. And I I'm not going to try to uh, recap that eloquent uh, discussion, but uh, Nancy. What struck me so much about your description of personalization and the challenge or or the goal being to take something that you like and be able to explain why you like it or why it's meaningful to you and then share that to someone else. I mean, to me, that does sort of seem like the uh, epitome of what, what we should be doing and, in fact, uh, we often do that on Twitter. You know, here's an article I read, or here's a, a, a great person that I talked to today. Um, but but how does that work within the museum context, or how are you beginning to think about that that challenge? Um, well, I think that uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, there there is there are real limits. There real are there are real constraints on the number of staff and the amount of budget that any given museum is is going to have. Um, and my view of when you use crowdsourcing, um, there, there are really kind of two ways that it has been used effectively. One is simply for engagement, um, but I'm not sure that that has always worked. Um, I think you very quickly end up um, in, a, in a situation where you're like, please comment on this. And uh, uh, maybe some people do, um, but uh, quite often those kind of discussion threads um, fall into a lot of crickets or into, um, you know, some sort of personal um, trolling and, and, and other kinds of uh, uh, people bashing each other online. Um, the more, the more uh, useful um, application of crowdsourcing that I have seen is when we identify that there is a problem that the museum's resources simply will never be able to address. Um, for example, when I was at the Smithsonian, we needed to uh, create verbal descriptions of collection objects so that they could be accessible to people uh, with low vision or who were blind, um, or indeed just to provide another route of, of 
access and and close looking at the objects. Well, with 132 million collection objects, it was clear that even the Smithsonian, with its billion-dollar-a-year budget, was never going to be able to record verbal descriptions of everything in the collection in English, let alone in all of the languages of all the, the audiences that the Smithsonian reaches. So crowdsourcing was actually the only practical route, that is to say, to build tools that invited visitors to record the descriptions and then work with that content as another layer um, of of information and interpretation available about the collection. Um, So I think when we think about personalization, that's really the scale of the problem that we're dealing with, that no museum is ever going to have enough staff, time, or money to create a personalized experience for every visitor, let alone for every mood and every moment and every context of use of every visitor. And so in in an ironic way, the only pragmatic solution is to, uh, as I used to say when I was at the Smithsonian, recruit the world to help you. Now, recruiting the world is, is again, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think it's something we can approach with uh, mass market advertising, um, even if we could afford that. It's really more about finding those niche communities of interest and recruiting them to engage with the parts of the collection, with the concepts, with the experiences and programs that might be meaningful to them and ask them to, as it were, personalize uh, the the door, the route to those experiences um, and and help create new routes of access. That's, uh, I I just want to underscore what you've said, Nancy, because I I think that it is such a pervasive misunderstanding. I think I've even uh, been guilty of of misunderstanding this this idea of personalization and and what it means in 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 very practical terms. And I uh, I hearken back to uh, one of my projects that I I did in in Baltimore years and years and years ago, where 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 someone um, uh, someone told me that well you know with with uh, with the digital technologies available to us today, we can personalize every guest's experience. And I suppose I should have known that maybe. That was not as simple as as this person suggested when he used the word guest, uh, based on our earlier conversation. But I think what 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 you are saying and what I I am hearing is that uh, this this holy grail of somehow using technology to uh, overcome the issues of of human capital. I mean, the technology may be there, but the human capital to express it and explain it it, to the scale that would be needed so that everyone coming into a museum or or visiting a site would have their own unique experience is, you know, maybe we just need to think about that for a minute and realize that that not only is that impractical, but maybe that's not what we want to be doing. Yeah, I think actually this is taking us in the direction of um, a very interesting body of thought and discussion that's unfolding now in the museum space, which is that of co-creation. And uh, Jasper Visser um, has talked uh, talked recently in um, uh, NMC and AAM's online conference about uh, future of museums 
about the Darby Silk Mill Museum um, in the UK as a great example of a museum that actually pulled itself out of crisis by precisely turning to the community to rebuild, to really rethink the museum from the ground up, um, including its mission. Um, and so the museum was co-created with the audience that it served. Um, and this this way of thinking about personalization, I, I think, is really uh, attempting to do exactly that, to recognize that um, as expert and wonderful and brilliant as our curators are and our content developers and museums are, our educators, um, they can only take us so far. And we really need to meet our audiences where they are in order not only to take them someplace new, but in order for them to take us someplace new as well. I, but I and I think that that's very valuable. Uh, I, Jasper actually did did talk about the Derby Silk Mill example on the show uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago. But and I and I remember you know Max Anderson is is often uh, saying you know it's not so much about uh, interpretation anymore as it is conversation. Uh, looking at this concept of co-creation, and while I do agree completely that there are that there is strength in the museum being a place where uh, people can share their ideas uh, with the museum and with others and and just go deeper into a subject I, th- I think that in and often we look at this this issue of personalization meaning uh, you know going back to your business model that all the mu- all the technology is doing is creating a very sophisticated Chinese menu right and what right. you're talking about is a much more interact is is allow is using you know whether it's a digital media or with you know the derby silk mill it was really you know people coming together in a physical place having conversations and sharing ideas uh, that that it's that it's that moment of connection it's not just an individual saying well i rather do you know i rather learn about uh, you know, this kind of stamp versus that kind of stamp. Just take me on the tour that, that shows me all the blue stamps. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, and I think this is also uh, kind of speaks to uh, an objective of moving people from passive consumption of content, which is not to stop that. I wouldn't want to stop that, and I couldn't if I did, um, but to create opportunities for as they become active producers of meaning around museums, they become stakeholders in the future of museums. And, you know, there too, I think that is about sustainability. Um, that if, if, we're, if we continue to occupy the role of a destination, of a uh, treasure house on the hill, um, a, you know, repository of great things and great learning, and, and that is it. Um, to be honest, we are positioned as the icing on the cake, as a nice to have in contemporary culture, but not as essential uh, to people's everyday lives, to their inspiration, their, their transformation and personal growth. The moment that people become involved 
in co-creating the museum with the museum staff and and other stakeholders, uh, then it's theirs. And, uh, you know, one would hope that we're then in a more uh, advantageous position if uh, there's talk of funding or even just questioning, you know, how much is a museum worth? How much of the, the pie should it get in terms of resources? There are more advocates out there to stand up for it. Um, so that's that's one side. Um I realize we're at the end of the hour and there probably isn't time to take the the discussion in this direction, but I would just want to flag that the uh, another very interesting take on the the role and in the importance of technologies, network technologies uh, in in creating sustainable museums today um, is in Rob Stein's recent es- essay on Medium called Museums So What? And... Um, I think that's a very important text, very thought-provoking about how we can use technology actually to start measuring that engagement and that transformation to go beyond, again, the dumb numbers of how many people came to the building, how many people visited the website, and actually start being able to really demonstrate uh, through both qualitative and quantitative analysis how important a role museums play and how we're transforming people's lives every day. Uh, I'm yes. I I think you're right. Uh, and the Rob Stein article, of course, he does work with uh, Max Anderson at the Dallas Museum of Art, and they have begun to uh, use technology to uh, to look at some of these these deeper uh, deeper ideas. You know, as you were speaking uh, about the 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 engagement and and the concept of co-creation, it did remind me of David Carr, uh, who talks about the museum experience uh, needs to be as as active as if you were and as physical as if you were playing uh, basketball uh, or or any kind of other physical activity uh, it takes a lot of, of energy uh, it's not a passive experience so we are at the end of our hour uh, Nancy I hope that I can have you back on the show in six or nine months after you've thought a little bit more carefully about this these these issues particularly of, of personalization. This has been just uh, uh, an inspiring uh, hour conversation. I've certainly learned a lot, and I know our listeners have too. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Carol. It was a real pleasure and, and very helpful to my thought process to get to talk out loud with you. Well, wonderful. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honored. Uh, and so we will be back next week with another uh, episode of uh, Museum Live. So please uh, stay tuned and tune in. We will be back next week. This is Carol Bossert. Hope you have a great day. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.